we're lucky, you and I, and our listeners, because we've had a glimpse into the future. We can see what's coming. We can orient it. And we're especially lucky because unlike the bulk of the world's people, it looks like there's something we can do to contribute to the change. Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode of Sustainability in Finance podcast. Today, we are welcoming Sean Kidney, the CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative, professor at SOAS University of London, and Global Capital Magazine's most influential champion of the sustainable finance market. And of course, last but not least, our excellent CEE Sustainable Finance Summit speaker. So hello, Sean, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so today we are going to explore the world of sustainability in debt or fixed income and more specifically bonds, not just any bonds, but green bonds, sustainability bonds, climate bonds, and much, much more. So let's just dive in. Sean, you co-founded Climate Bonds Initiative in 2009, which has since then become the gold standard verification of green and sustainability bonds. And it also helped develop a market for sustainable investments. So could you please tell us more about how the idea started and how has the sustainable or climate bond market changed since then? The idea is, of course, not so much an idea, it's a strategy. There are two stories here. One story is my own personal journey and the other one, which is why the hell I'm doing this, which led to the strategy. And the other thought is of thinking behind the strategic framework. I've had a view for a long time that um, we're, we've had a bit of a revolution in how we structure and manage our capital assets over the last 50 years in the Western world, which is a revolution we haven't always been as conscious of about what we're doing. When it comes down to pools of capital, we have shifted substantial ownership of pools of capital into horizontal institutions, pension funds, insurance funds, sovereign wealth funds, who are not vertically institutions are the ones used to control capital in the past. So the banks of the past, or the corporations, would own all the layers of the process and be wedded to different processes. So bankers have got a challenge because not only does it manage pools of capital, but it has bank branches it's got to maintain and so on. Insurance company uh, Ditto will often has a whole range of, um, of layers of commitment to the financial sector that has to be support as a conglomerate. A pension fund in particular nowadays is structured in most countries as a staff light asset, uh, I should say, uh, organizational framework light organization that is a steward of assets for the long term. And it has built into its DNA long-term horizons in a way that corporate structures have lost since about 1980, 1970s and 80s. We've seen a significant shift in focus on the part of corporates and on banks to short-term returns. It's been driven by a variety of things, including and especially executive remuneration which has been linked to stock options and so on. And as a result, you've had a substantial skewing of financial activity and of planning around the financial at exactly the time when we have started confronting 
a long-term problem, climate change, which is very difficult to deal with, with short-term horizons, very difficult to deal with. The five-year horizons of modern portfolio management theory don't give us a framework to be able to manage this particular challenge. And all this is exemplified as best in Mark Carney's tragedy of the horizon speech in Berlin some years ago when he was the Bank of England governor. Asset owners are separate from that. They are required to meet your pension liability when you retire in 85 years' time or whatever it might be. So, And they have to therefore plan for it. They're not required to make more. They don't have to make stratospheric profits. They don't have, that, they don't have quite that shareholder return. Of course, they're going to maximize returns to ensure they can pay benefits. But that's the assets and liabilities matching over the longer term that is important. When you become a large owner or manager, I should say, of capital, like an NBIM in Norway or a PGGM in, in the Netherlands, things get a little bit tricky. You can no longer really stock pick your way out of problems. You start depending on the rising tide of the economy to ensure the rising tide of your portfolios. In other words, the interests of that you have to meet your long-term assets and liabilities become concurrent with the interests of, of the economic well-being of the societies in which you invest in. It's not good enough to say, look, I'm just going to buy Coca-Cola or Tesla shares and make a fortune. I've got to have all boats rising because I'm so big, I have to diversify everywhere. So the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, I think, has something like 1.5% of all equities on the planet. It can't prosper by having the odd shooting star company make a lot of money for it. I mean, it needs those, of course, but it has to ensure that all its investments spread around because diversification requirements make money. It actually has an investment in ensuring that the economy in which it participates can be prosperous. Now, what does that mean when we look at prosperity, let's say, in, in uh, Slovakia or Poland over time? It means a hell of a lot more than just short-term economic policy. We need to ensure that we have the right education policies that will lead to the right kinds of outcomes over a 20-year horizon. We need to ensure that we have the right health and welfare policies that will ensure productive work by our citizens, not marginalisation. We need to address inequality because inequality is a predictor of the fragility of economies and societies and a predictor of deeper recessions and then peaks. The recessions destroy shareholder value from pinch funds. They need smooth transitions. They can't they don't want volatile transitions and so on and so on and so on. Above all, we need to look long term. And if you look long term, there's a freight train on the horizon. And that freight train is coming right towards us and it's called climate change. Now, in a world where we have not been acting on climate change, because most institutions, from oil companies to banks and to governments, have been caught up in short-term problems and that have, have not had the capacity, frankly, to address long-term problems and have often worked against the addressing of long-term problems. Look at the work that oil companies have done to kill off climate change action in the last 40 years, as exemplified by legal action all around the world on the topic. This long-termism is critically important. There's a special feature about asset owners. These are no longer marginal and niche players. These are the players that own everything. If they are, were to exercise the nature of the shareholder power, they could actually drive change. They could influence governments by saying, 
we are keen to invest in this area because we think that's going to be lower risk if you take these actions to mitigate the threat of climate change and so on and so on and so on. Therein lies what interested me in this particular strategy. And some 15 years ago, I wrote a paper about how we might be able to tackle the climate crisis by mobilising institutional investors as a force for change. Bonds are simply necessary because some 60 to 90% of assets of institutional investors are in fixed income. If you're not tackling fixed income, you've missed the point of the whole game. You've misunderstood what the capital stack is. So that's the background to it. Of course, there's some other things too. You know, in in terms of bonds, they're they're often long-term instruments, which is quite useful given we're dealing with long-term problems. And they force you to confront how you manufacture creditworthiness, which is not simply be an assessment of what a private company is doing at this particular moment. It's an understanding of the enabling framework, policies, regulations. And in fact, that's how you adjust risk. You know, our markets are managed. They are not free in some kind of lunatic and Rand kind of model. They are managed for a very good reason. They prosper with rules. Of course, when you adjust the rules of a market, you can shift capital. And the essence of what we're talking about doing when we have to change our planet so quickly, our global economy so quickly, has been to use the forces of the market economy, the social market economy, exemplified by European governments over the last 40 years in a range of areas and their work to work with industry to create a prosperous economy for our citizens, has been is, is that we start adjusting this in a way to address forward risk and to ensure prosperity through these difficult times that we now have to address. Hey, that's it. It's easy, right? <laughs> and I thought, oh, it looks so obvious. I think we've just got to start talking about this. No one else seemed to be talking about it. So we thought, oh, okay, better set up an organization and start doing podcasts with people. And here we are today. Yeah, pretty simple, I think. Good. That is definitely a, a, an amazing overview, but also setting the scene and the context also of past 15, 20 years. Yeah. So it was very much a strategic decision, you know, considering the timing and the shift from that short term to long term, but also the need and potential impact given the size of fixed income and what role it plays. So that definitely makes more sense to me. And thank you so much. So maybe to go a bit more into, let's say, specific instruments or more granular aspects of fixed income and, and sustainability in fixed income. So it would be interesting to maybe explore some of these instruments for our listeners. I still think that, you know, green bonds, different types of bonds and sustainability bonds are fairly new even to our region. Although I am I am conscious that there are some exceptions and I'm I'm really glad to see that there's more and more activities and this is something you can maybe mention to uh, more and more activity on sustainability in fixed income in our region and CE as well. But could you maybe talk us through some of the main instruments you had in mind when talking about how it started? Well, our mission statement at Climate Bonds is mobilizing global capital for climate action. Clearly, all forms of capital are important, including state investment. The fixed income space is by far the largest slice of global capital. You know, I think fixed income is suddenly sitting about $130 trillion outstanding. Equities is sitting at about $70 trillion outstanding, for example. So there's a need, and, and also it's an area that doesn't get much attention. A lot of it's in passive, about a third of it's in passive investment funds too. So it's complicated to deal with these issues. But if we get a shift capital flows, then ignoring the fixed income is lunatic. Also, fixed income 
provides an important keystone within the capital stack. And by capital stack, I mean other forms of capital. For example, if equity investors can easily refinance in the fixed income market, they do more. You get greater churn. If you change the equity lifespan for successful equity investment from 10 years to three years, uh, that is people can get their money back in three years by refinancing the bond market, you're effectively turning the same piece of capital in the equity side around around much, much faster. You're making it do a lot more. A renewable energy developer could do three or four times the amount of solar plants if they're able to refinance quickly in the market. So fixed income is like unbelievably important. Let's call it the massive still ocean behind the wave, the froth of equity that's the front line. So that's the background to it. But of course, we're not blind. In fact, rather the reverse. We're looking at all forms of of capital. First, in the fixed income space, this particular market started with development banks issuing green bonds, and then later on other sorts of bonds, social and sustainable, to finance activities. That was very successful, led to increased demand and pressure internally in the organizations to do more, to justify the preferential capital raising. It went corporate. It's now gone sovereign. We've seen a major growth with sovereign bond issuance. Poland, in fact, was the very first global sovereign green bond issuer. Uh, But we've seen them from France, Germany, from Hungary, from Serbia, all sorts of places around. These have become useful ways for governments to raise money for climate-related activities, and they tend to get preferential access to capital. They get higher subscription rates. They get a slight price difference. And they then help the internal pressure to do more. I mean, if I frame it this way, a friend of mine in the Ministry of Climate Change in Ireland said to me a couple of years ago when the Irish government issued their first green bond, he said, Sean, I've been trying to get a meeting at the Ministry of Finance and Treasury for three years now about these time policies, and then they phoned me to come in and meet with them. What's going on? Well, what's going on is a green bond. So these are change activities that come off that. We've seen a growth of the green loan market. We've seen short-term paper, green repos. So the whole debt sector starts getting involved. But now we're seeing the drift of that idea, which is an umbrella of things that relate to climate change, shift into equity. From an investor perspective, the equity side has been in silos, renewable, electric vehicles, carbon capture sequestration even, all that sort of stuff. But what we're saying is there's an umbrella factor of climate change, which provides liquidity and provides a recycling of capital opportunity into the green bond market. And so now we're seeing funds being set up as green or climate funds with a much broader brief. Some of these are transition funds. The newest discussion, which is, again, a subset of the whole issue, is people who are not green now, but are planning to become green in the context of Paris Agreement targets. So we've seen companies making promises for CapEx plans that will lead them to be consistent with the Paris Agreement target. Some of those are very weak promises. Some are quite robust. We're, in fact, rolling out next month tool sets to be able to assess and certify these kinds of things. That's an equity story. And in fact, the link between equity and fixed income came up first to me a few years ago when we started seeing a correlation between successful green bond issues by corporates in Europe and the share price of those companies. They got a bounce and they stayed up. So you can sort of see how, in fact, it's all one larger universe. So one large universe, definitely, but also, I mean, based on what you're saying, there's while it started with some, with a few 
different types of, you know, whether that's a green bond, maybe climate bond. There's a huge variety of instruments now. No, I th- and, I th- and I think they're still developing. And I also see or also note more and more focus on the transitional bonds as well or sustainability linked bonds. So definitely that space, while it's a separate universe, is developing really, really quickly. Well, it, look, it's a $3 trillion market now and you necessarily get get fractalization, if you like, and new products and, and some, which is fantastic. That's part of the joy of it, the the way it's now allowing innovation to happen on the edges of it. Yeah, no, definitely. And what is interesting also, just maybe it's moving to a slightly different angle of the topic, because every time when we introduce you as a speaker or maybe even here on the podcast, what I always notice is that, I mean, while you are based in London, you often <laughs> often call us from different places, different time zones, and you also have been in terms of your career and um, as a consultant or advisor, have been working with the UN, the European Commission on Sustainable Finance, but also People's Bank of China, and quite quite a few different bodies and countries. I think that gives you a very interesting overview of what are some of the practices and approaches globally. So, could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Maybe what are some of the main differences between the countries you see, or maybe from my perspective as someone who sits, you know, in Europe and in the EU. I see EU trying to lead on green bonds with its EU green bond standard, for example. So do you see any any major differences in how countries approach approach green bonds and, and fixed income and sustainability in it? Sure. And yes, I, I do live in London, but I'm, I want to stress I'm a proud carrier of an Irish passport. So I'm a proud European citizen here. Um, in other words, no Brexit for me. <laughs> the differences are probably best summed up in countries where the growth out of poverty has been relatively recent are much more open to strong steps by governments, by the public sector, to facilitate changes that are required. We've got lost in Europe and in the US in a kind of false orthodoxy. Somehow or other, we've got to be careful not to tamper with the market because the market will sort this out. The US in particular is full of myths of market. For example, the growth in the 1950s and 60s was a triumph of market forces. Absolute rubbish. One of the things that the US learned in World War II was the extent to which managing a market, by the military in that particular case, led to the changes that required to feed the world war economy. And that led after World War II in the context of the communist capitalist conflict that was going on to the setting up of a wide range of institutions, venture capital funds, for example, that were seeded by government money. And when you buy an Apple iPhone, something like 55% of the patents in that phone were developed by public sector investments in the 50s and 60s. And those venture capital funds had a longer-term horizon. Remember I talked about horizons in the beginning. They tend to have 10-year returns horizons because they had a public policy objective as well. Venture capital funds in Silicon Valley nowadays, the the commercial ones, have three-year returns horizons. That is not patient capital. And they are not being as innovative as they were in the 50s and 60s as a result. They're not funding basic research. Now, this is a real problem for an economy that has to shift so drastically as we have to shift to in the next 20 years. We need to be understanding, well, in, in places like India or China, they're not shy of this at all. They're happy to learn the real lessons of Jean Monnet in France in the 1950s, which is a guided economy, which is the fundamental lesson of, of Europe as well as the US, despite the orthodoxy that we ended up adopting 
as a result of the 1980s, 1990s. We got lost in the way. We got caught up in this idea of market forces when really strong direction. Now, of course, strong direction does not mean, in my view, picking individual companies. I am no fan of saying that Renault should be a state champion. We've got to keep Renault going whatsoever. You know, much more interesting in the in something like the Swedish model, where a company that is allowed to go bust, rather you have social obligations to ensure staff always, if they get into unemployment, will go straight into training schemes and so on. The state picks up the greasing of the wheels to make sure the economy will keep turning without relying on ossified companies, which is what the US tends to do. So there's a whole issue about what economic development paradigms are and should be, which I just don't find confusing in emerging key emerging markets. In, in India and in China, they have been extremely happy to simply say, well, we need the central bank to do X, Y, and Z to grow the economy. They talk about incentives. They say, well, look, clearly we need material incentives. We will design material incentives. Do you know we still don't have material incentives for green finance in Europe? Why? We're the leader in green bonds. We could do this. We could boom this. The European Central Bank has talked about green quantitative easing. Christine Lagarde has talked about, and yet there is still not an active mandate. There is a soft mandate, corporate green bonds. But, you know, in Bangladesh, they started having an active program of buying green bonds 10 years ago, as they did in Peru in the Central Bank, that understood the need to shift the economy and the role they could play through asset purchasing schemes. Or the Central Bank in China has a lending program at the liquidity lending window of the Central Bank, where banks who post green bonds as collateral can get a 1% discount on wholesale funds. That is a very powerful incentive for those banks to create more green bonds. And you can, and of course, that then flows on to lending programs. So that's, the, I think, the key difference between emerging markets and rich countries. We need to grasp this issue. I think in the, in the context of the Ukraine war and the challenge that, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the challenge of which Europe has um, had to deal with, we are grappling with this issue quite well. You know, Germany in particular has a sea change around state intervention the last couple of years, taking over the Gazprom distribution network and Uniper and so on. So I'm hopeful that through this process, we'll see that flowing on into more interventionist policies in renewable energy, in uh, distribution of electricity around Europe, as well as in land use policies and so on, to make sure that we shift this to addressing climate change. So that's kind of, I think, the um, opportunity going forward. By the way, I'm not talking about, I want to stress, fiscally inefficient ball subsidies. I think we have an amazing palette of very fiscally efficient tools that we've actually trialed before. Again, I looked at the 50s and 60s that we can roll out around a green revolution. We've just got to be thinking green everywhere. But (laughs) it's simple in a way, isn't it? Yep, very simple. But then again, it's often that simple solutions are the best, right? And I, I completely agree that we should seek and innovate some of the useful solutions that worked in the past, whether that is fiscal policies and tools or reflect on some of the existing legislation and update it so it's so it's more in line with the current climate goals. But also potentially look and explore how some of these opportunities and gaps are leveraged in other countries and even emerging markets. So yeah, so it's um, definitely a very interesting view at the topic. And it is... You're right, you know, it is that opportunity paradigm. I mean, if we do shift our economy over 
to becoming low carbon, green, and resilient, which we kind of, there's an existential reason for us to do it. If we don't, we're, we're toast. But if we do, well, according to the best estimates I've seen by McKinsey's, it's about um, globally $9 trillion a year of investment just in the mitigation side. That's investment. That's not wasted expenditure, if you like. So that's, that's where we can construct the return. And that's Keynesian stimulus and steroids. That is like, that's a global boom. And Europe is well-placed technologically to be able to be a leader in the kinds of businesses that will be able to prosper in that economy. Yeah, it is indeed. And, and that actually brings me to the, the next question or the next point I wanted to explore, because I completely agree. And I, I think, and this is something we often emphasize when you know talking about sustainable finance and these topics, it is the opportunity, it's the investment opportunity, exactly. As you said, with the returns. However, and as I know, and you probably know really well as well, there's still some countries where some of these topics or approach to these topics are a bit more skeptical. And I think it's changing and it's really good to be you know, based here in Prague and see some of these differences and developments. But maybe, so I would like to hear uh, more about what's your prognosis for the future of climate and green bonds, but maybe even more so for some of those countries, such as still even in the Central and Eastern Europe, where some of these topics and some of these instruments are still new. What do we expect for next 10 years, 20 years? Well, there's, there's two answers. First, in the narrow confines of the area we work in, there is no doubt that the super tanker has started shifting. We are now moving towards a trajectory of rapid change for, for a variety of reasons, including the Green Deal. That will mean that we will see many more examples of the change, that I, the milestone that we saw in August, I think it was of last year, maybe it was the year before actually, when on the London Stock Exchange, the capitalization of Orsted, which was a coal and oil company, as you might recollect in Denmark some 25 years ago, and is now the world's largest wind energy company, overtook the capitalization of BP, an oil company. That was an exciting moment. And then later that same month in New York, the capitalization of Nextera, again, a renewable energy company, which was originally a coal company 25 years ago, and it shifted dramatically, overtook the capitalization of Exxon, that used to be the world's largest company. That's what's happening. That's what we're in the middle of doing now. The challenge for investors is picking the Austin to the next year as going forward and getting out of the industries that are dying. So we're in the middle of that change now. So I'm quite optimistic. Of course, that will mean a substantial continuing growth in green finance of various sorts, partly because we're now beginning to introduce different types of incentives, like that Chinese central bank incentive I mentioned. We will see green guarantee schemes become normal in Europe in the next couple of years for green bonds, so that the idea of retaining the thematic instrument will be useful because it'll be linked to various kinds of incentives. On the broader question of how we're doing, well, we are starting very late. It is important for everyone to note that we've lost now the fight against climate change. Shrinks, I'm sorry, everyone. We're too late. We will hit 1.5 degrees sometimes in the next few years. We are likely to see 2 degrees plus. We have to aim for 1.5 and continue to work 1.5, including rolling out direct air capture measures and so on, because we've got to try and stabilize temperatures because we can't live in a world of 3 degrees to 3.5 degrees. Humans are unlikely to be able to prosper in that kind of universe. The amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere becomes so intense, they 
go up from 415 ppm now to 1,000 ppm by the end of the year under that particular trajectory. And what you might not know, that 1,000 ppm is a bit like stuck in a lecture room at university all afternoon when the heating's on, the air conditioning's off, the windows are closed, and everyone is sleepy because you've been stuck in a room with a droning lecturer for three hours. Well, that's actually 1,000 ppm. That's what it is. Humans become stupider. Our brain functions slow down at 1,000 ppm. One of the reasons we fall asleep in that tutorial room. In other words, we have a reduced capacity to deal at the very existential threat facing us if we put too many. This is not a trajectory you want to go on. <laughs> we have to find another way out of it, which means we have to get emissions down, even though we now know where they're going to go up to two, which is possible. You know, in, in the U- US IRA, for all the consternation that's caused in Europe, there are a number of very exciting, simple provisions. A vast tax rebate for direct air capture has led to the announcement by Occidental Petroleum War country, oil companies that they are rolling out a large-scale direct air capture scheme in Texas, taking air straight out of the atmosphere and burying it underground. They're not doing it to recover oil and gas. They're simply sequestering. The technology is well and truly tried. It's just been too expensive. The US has effectively brought in a vast subsidy. That's exactly what we need to do everywhere as one of the many, many things we need to do. I'm sort of hopeful that we can make this strategy work. I'm not going to say it's likely because on rational grounds, we are heading towards disaster. We're on the Titanic. Let's be clear about this. We've seen the iceberg. It's not at all certain that we can shift the ship in time. That's kind of where we are. But there is a chance. There's a chance which, well, then also it brings more and more investment opportunities for adaptation as well, if this is the trajectory we are going on. So looking at that more hopeful perspective, I think is really important. But I, I, we do see, even when talking to companies here, you know, in the last, let's say, two, two and a half years, when we started working on these topics in the sea region, there's definitely more happening on the topics. There's more, not only green bonds being issued, but also more discussion and more activity on ESG across not only SMEs and bigger companies, but also government. So I'm also really hopeful. And I think, the, as you said, maybe a bit late, but at least, you know, something is happening and we are getting more active now. And one of the main benefits of this podcast is that we, we get to talk to very interesting people and we can ask them different types of questions. And we also try to ask at least one bit more personal question to leverage the, the opportunity um, of speaking to such people. And you, you know, being one of the pioneers on sustainable finance overall, not only in terms of bonds, I'm taking this opportunity and Actually, it would be really interesting to hear as someone who has been working in this field, which for this region is still fairly new. What would be your career advice for someone wanting or starting their career in sustainability or sustainable finance? What do you think is some of the main things they should consider? You know, I'm not necessarily the most um, career-focused person to be able to give advice about banking sector. Although I will say simply that the business of addressing the existential threat facing as a planet is becoming the main business of all institutions going forward. So it's a bit like knowing maths at school. If you don't know about climate change and things have got to be done about it, you're going to be missing your trick. You'll be missing an opportunity. So minimum requirement, that's one way of answering it. Another way of answering it, on the positive side, is 
I do think there's still a chance. I think it is possible to avert the iceberg, or at least to worst the iceberg. And the work involved in doing it is of such extraordinary breadth that the government that I'm most excited by at the moment is the Danish government. They instituted in their last term for the last election, it's continuing, a root and branch review across every single ministry about what needs to be done to address climate change. It wasn't just the Ministry of Energy, the Ministry of Finance, every single ministry. That gives you an extent, an idea of how all-encompassing what it is that we have to do is, which means it affects every area of work. If you're in architecture, it, the nature of design of buildings has to change to deal with resilience. You know, As you mentioned before, because we've lost the fight against climate change, we have to prepare our societies for adaptation and social and health too. Pandemics will become frequent now. As the IPCC has been telling for some years, the health sector has to adjust its thinking to how to prepare for lots and lots of pandemic-style shocks coming to the system on a regular basis. Everywhere you look, this is the major issue. Now, we're lucky, you and I and our listeners, because we've had a glimpse into the future. We can see what's coming. We can orient it. And we're especially lucky because unlike the bulk of the world's people, it looks like there's something we can do to contribute to the change. The bulk of the world's people are struggling just to get food at their table, to be able to eat, to farm crops and so on. We can work, especially the finance sector, on ensuring capital flows to the right places, ensuring solutions are made, ensuring that public sector decisions are done in the right kind of way to benefit the greater part of society. We have an extraordinary privilege. And I'm going to say to all young people, there is nothing so exciting and so motivating of doing something where you can get paid, you can earn a living out of it, and you can contribute to what is, at the end of the day, creating a world that our children can live in and a world where we address our potential, which is clearly, I'm going to say, to turn our stewardship, which is there at the moment. We are, in, as juveniles, blindly managing the planet is what we've now learned to our shock in terms of the extent of our impact on the planet, to conscious stewardship of the planet. That is the purpose. That is a purpose which is an extraordinary, uh, I'm going to say, opportunity for anyone setting out in the career now. Keep an eye on that. Follow your passions, of course. Follow your interests within that framework. But understand that this is it's getting to be a bit like the meaning of our, spe- of our species, I'm afraid. And it's exciting. It is so exciting. And I completely agree. Not only about the purpose and excitement, but while we both are working and talking about sustainable finance, I really like what you mentioned. That is, it's a very powerful message, but sustainability goes across all sectors and different fields. And I think whatever people study or whatever is the you know the sector they want to join, there's sustainability is going to be, if it's not already the core of that business and definitely adapting to all the changes will be one of the main things. So that's a really clear and really exciting message for the end of the episode. So thank you so much, Sean, for joining us and sharing your thoughts today. And also on behalf of ISFC, I I hope to welcome you in in Prague soon again. And yeah, so perhaps even for this year's CE Sustainable Finance Summit again in May. So thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners again. Stay tuned for the upcoming episodes with other inspirational global leaders in sustainable finance. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much and see you in Prague for certain. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. 
check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.